0: Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth podcast, the step-by-step edition, as my broadcast partner Dave Lapham joins me to discuss week two of organized team activities, or OTAs, for the Bengals under new head coach Zach Taylor. By the way, is it considered a credibility killer to sing the beginning of a New Kids on the Block song in a football podcast? In any case... I'll talk to Lapp about what he observed at Tuesday's practice, and he'll share the names of two newcomers to the roster that other players on the team have been raving about without even being asked about them. We'll get a unique perspective on the Bengals' number one draft pick, Jonah Williams, as I talk to one of his former high school teammates back in Folsom, California. And in this week's Fun Facts interview, I'll talk to the Bengals' new defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo, about a wide variety of topics ranging from coaching rocket scientists, literally, at Harvard, to New York City pizza. All of that is straight ahead. But first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest invention since the Access Strength. The Access Strength is fitness equipment designed by a University of Cincinnati grad named Ryan Eater that caters to people of all abilities, including people with disabilities. Ryan began working on it many years ago when he noticed a man in a wheelchair struggling to exercise. It's a remarkable story, and if you're interested in learning more, you can check it out at includehealth.com. Now let's get to football as I bring in my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Lap, let's start with the progression from week one of OTAs to week two of OTAs. What did they do a little bit differently today that they hadn't been doing last Monday?
1: Well, a little bit of situational stuff uh, today. Monday was no situational football whatsoever. Today was a lot of red zone stuff. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a progression and it's a step-by-step progression. And I, I think overall there is improvement, but they're not there yet. But again, when you when you look over on the on the uh, rehab field, you got Pro Bowlers galore. AJ Green, the perennial one. Tyler Eifert, a Pro Bowler. Joe Mixon, AFC rushing leader, Pro Bowl candidate. I mean, that that's three serious components to your offense. Probably your three biggest components to your offense potentially. Um, so you know they, they're they are down a few weapons. And honestly, I I think. It's unfortunate because getting those reps is big. this is a new offense, and there there is a process to a step by step process to it and I thought overall it was better than it was last Monday. I'm not saying Red Zone doesn't need a lot of improvement. I don't know how much red Zone they've done. We only see one practice a week, but Red Zone, when we were good in eighty one and the eighty eight team I was part of Red Zone practices and watched red Zone practices where you know eighty eighty five percent of the time there were completions I mean the ball wasn't on the ground. Whereas, you know, today it was more toward 50% of the time, and there was you don't want turnovers in the red zone that, that happened. Those are the kind of things you need to avoid. Um, so th- there are it's miles to go before they rest, but I'm telling you, Dan, standing behind them, you know, I look at Gary Kubiak's offense that he ran with the Houston Texans and in Denver that was inside-outside zone, and then they ran play action off of that, and they got big chunk plays off that play action. It was, it was remarkable. You'd watch the end zone uh, footage, and right at the mesh point, you'd stop it and say, run or pass, and you're guessing. Mm. And it's a 50-50 proposition. You know, sometimes it would be a run, sometimes you'd pull it out of there and it would be a pass. Well, think of what the defensive linemen are thinking. Do I need to, oh, man, what is this? I, not, the worst thing that you can get a def- or best thing an offense can make a defense do, and the worst thing a defense wants to have to do is guess. if you have defensive linemen like, man, I can't blow up the field like I want to because they they may be running the ball here. It's the exact same look. You get a little hesitation, then they have to restart. By the time they restart, it's too late. The ball's out in the National Football League. Linebackers are looking, is it a run, is it a pass? If it's a run, I better get my first step downhill Oh, oh, man, it's a pass. If it's a pass, I better get my first step in a drop step. mind, well, I'm heading downhill because I'm thinking it's a run. I mean, they got you in a, between a rock or hard place. And, you know, pass rush, linebacker play, safeties, it's tough. And if they, when they get it down, they, they don't have it down yet. When they get it down, it's going to be very interesting to watch it from the end zone because the, the, the play-action passes are right off of those run plays. It's the exact same look. It's not like, you know, just a token play-action pass just to do it from a timing or rhythm standpoint. It is off of those plays. And the linemen are pulling and all the action's going on. It, it's an it's a identical snapshot photo up until the mesh point of the football. So it, they, they are gonna get a lot of chunk plays out of this, uh, this offensive football team. And, uh, and, and really, a, a, big, a big reason for success in, in those play actions are press the digitation by the quarterback, having that good play action stuff. Sam Weiss was the best at it. His hands were huge. He'd hide the football. And he was a magician. And he was a magician, <laughs> no question. And he was a magician with that football. But all the guys he coached, Joe Montana, Kenny Anderson, I mean, these guys were really good with play-action passing. And it, that, that's the biggest part of it is the quarterback hard faking it, Boomer Esiason, you coached Boomer Esiason. Hard fake with the play-action, hide the football. That's a big key to the success. So Andy Dalton had some good ones out there, and, and he's got to keep continue to work on that because that's going to be his best friend.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I wrote down the first five plays that they ran. First play, play action, bootleg to the right, two receivers going out in that direction, Uzama or Alex Erickson. He passed Erickson for a nice game. Second play, play action, deep ball. Josh Malone yep. was incomplete, but that was the play. Third play, play action, roll to the right, screen back to the left. Fourth play, play action to the right, deep shot down the left sideline for John Ross. Fifth play, run up the middle, big gaping hole set up by what we had seen from the previous four plays.
1: Exactly. Sometimes in in, in this type of offense, you know, people are like, well, the run game going to set up play action. Play action sets up the run too. I mean, it's 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 a, a glove fit in the hand type of thing. It really does. It's, particularly if you can get, you're in situations where you're second and four, third and two, where you can run it or throw it. You know, you don't want to be behind the chains. If you stay ahead of the chains offensively, now you have the defense guessing, big-time guessing. And the quarterbacks that the Bengals have on the roster are capable of getting out of pocket. So not only the play-action stuff, will slow a defensive lineman down. Changing the launch point slows the defensive lineman down. You don't want to let them get outside of your contain. You have to be, you know, real careful to make sure that you change your course or your path of pass rush to try to contain the quarterback or have somebody out there containing the quarterback because it gives them a two-way go. You know, he can tuck it and pick up yards uh, running the football. If there's no pass rush out there and coverage is good, you uh, can, you know, not, not jeopardize uh, putting the ball in danger, tuck it and run. And then slide, get out of bounds, do those kind of things. So it's gonna be interesting. I, I think this I like the concept of what they're trying to get to. They haven't gotten to it yet, but I think when they do and they have all their weapons and, and that's the thing too, because you know, everybody is, is, is trying to learn it and absorb it, and the only way you do it is reps. So it's unfortunate that AJ, Joe Mixon, you know, Tyler Eifert aren't getting those reps with Andy. And that's why these guys that don't show up at these OTAs, and it is voluntary. They're not getting the reps with their teammates. Not getting the reps with the quarterback. I think that's that's too bad. I think I think that's a tough dynamic, particularly if they're working with a new quarterback. These guys aren't working with a new quarterback, but they're working with a new offense. These other guys that are signing places and not going. New quarterback, new coach, new system, new everything. So um, in in this case, the Bengals new coach, new system, same quarterback, but you want you'd like to get those reps because everybody is working now uh in the process of taking it step one, step two, step three, and assimilating that offense, whether it be um, you know situational football, red zone, third down that's something they'll they'll get into third down, fourth down, clock management, all those kind of things are going to be big.
0: We talked a lot about the offensive line last week and they lined up the same way today. Jonah Williams at left tackle, Cordy Glenn, left guard, Billy Price at center, John Miller at right guard. Bobby Hart at right tackle, let's turn over and look at the defensive line. That's a group that's got some really talented players. Geno Atkins first and foremost, Carlos Dunlap, Carl Lawson, assuming he comes back 100% this year. And yet, despite those names, and again, Lawson was hurt last year, it was a unit that that was not dominant last year. And, And to me, at least, it's a group that should play better than it played.
1: I agree with you. They've got talent to be much better than they were. And I think uh, Lou Rumo is doing a good job of, of, of putting it together. And I think, I think the coaches are, are doing a good job of, of, uh, of communicating his message. And, and they're doing it, you know, with guys that, uh, that played in the league, like Neeson. Neeson is having a major impact, I think, on the defensive line. And I agree with you, Dan. I think if, if the Bengals get consistent play out of their offensive line, defensive line, and linebackers... They're going to be pretty good. Now, defensive line and linebackers, that's two-thirds of the defense right there. And they were having issues. And then, of course, when they're having issues, the secondary is going to have a tremendous amount of issues. I think the secondary is good enough to play at a high level if the front seven gives them an opportunity. And I think that um, they're doing a pretty good job of handling this offense right now as they're going through the learning curve and coverage. And uh, they're hustling. They're running to the football. Um, I, I, there's very few, in my to my eye, there's you know there's always going to be assignment mistakes, but it's not a plague of assignment mistakes. So you know that the guys are into it, um, they've bought in, they're in the right spirit and the right frame of mind, they're learning it. So I, I'm encouraged by it. And the thing that uh, you can always tell Dan about players, you mentioned you know a, a couple of the offensive linemen, Cordy Glenn and John Miller at the guard position. Unsolicited, defensive players have said, Cordy Glenn, man, is so big. He's, he's going to be a tough a tough matchup at guard. John Miller, powerful, strong dude. So pads aren't on yet, but they're still. The, the best uh, recommendation you can get or or probably the most trustworthy evaluation is a teammate, mm-hmm. a player going against a guy in practice or a guy that works against him in games and those kind of things. The other one's sample. M- multiple defensive players have come up to me. Tight end's a football player. And when you look at sample, it's like, Okay. He's not like a world-class athlete. Rookie minicamp, he didn't exhibit world-class athletic ability, but when he got into football, he's a football player. And he's a football player in this the OTAs with the veteran players. He is going to make a lot of plays. He is I I think he's I think he's fooling. I think he's faster than people think he is. I think he's got functional football speed. Uh, I am interested to see and it was, it was it was good to my ears to hear unsolicited teammates on the defensive side of the football, tight end can play a lap. Tight end, he's he's got some he's got some talent. He's a football player. And that's the biggest compliment you can make. as a one football player to another. You know, not, it's not track and field. You know, it's football. And I think the kid's going to be a good player.
0: I was not able to attend the rookie minicamp. It sounded like the quarterback they drafted in the fourth round, Ryan Finley, struggled somewhat uh, that weekend last monday so so early today he threw a bad interception where he overthrew his target and went right into the hands of demetrius cox then they got to those red zone drills and he started to look better
1: yeah and i think i think with him um usually i mean the biggest adjustment for any at any position is the quarterback position cuz i mean it's it's like It's rush hour, (laughs) you know, out there. Sometimes you you think you might see things. I mean, they were doing some zone blitz stuff today defensively. Early in practice, I saw Sam Hubbard dropping off, you know, into coverage instead of a pass rusher, and he's athletic enough, as we know. He played safety in high school, played linebacker in in college before he moved to defensive lineman. So he's athletic enough to do those kind of things. And, you know, you see it some in college, but you just don't see it – as much as it, as big a variation of scheme as you might see in the NFL with the talented with the talent level of player that you see in the NFL. Uh, you'll hear rookie players say it all the time you know I might have played against three guys last year that're as good as these guys at this level and you this is every day this is every day of practice, every game you know you're going to be tested uh, both mentally and physically and Ryan Finley's in that boat for sure.
0: As I mentioned earlier, one of their first plays of the day was a deep ball down the left sideline for John Ross. He caught at least one touchdown pass in the red zone drills. They gave it to him on a reverse. Do you see his confidence growing? Can you tell that from watching him in OTAs?
1: I, I do see it uh, growing, um, and Andy is, uh, is, is definitely uh, – they weren't on the same page in, in early in the, the red zone drills, and the ball was incomplete when it shouldn't have been. And Andy immediately went over to John Ross to make sure that um, tell him what he saw and and what he thought he should have done, and explained it to John. So John, you know, they do get on the same page. Um, Yeah, I think I think they're going to try to uh, incorporate John Ross's skill set into this offense. I mean, he's he's just what the doctor ordered in terms of you you know put into a computer. Some uh, some talents, some physical abilities that you'd like to have at the receiver position in this type of scheme. John Ross fits that bill. I mean, when that guy goes in motion for a jet sweep, you have to honor it. If you give him the football and you're you're lagging behind, you know, you're you're guessing. He can he can scorch you, um, and, and then you can you can run routes off of that uh, jet sweep, fake jet sweep action as well. And I mean, he, he's definitely got got talent, but I think he's still thinking too much. Uh, Tyler Boyd has said that. Tyler Boyd went on record saying that, you know, John Ross is still, uh, in, instead of, you know, fluidly reacting to coverages, he's stinking a little bit too much. That negates that 4-2-2 speed. You know, when you're thinking, when you're unsure, a co- an athlete that's not confident affects the functional football speed. And I think he's still fighting through that phase of it. Um, but but he, I think they're looking to him to make a lot of big plays for this football team this season.
0: It's late May. This is week two of the OTAs. They have three weeks of these OTAs, a total of 10 practices. What were you doing in late May in your playing career? Yeah, we only had one, um, one
1: mandatory you know, camp. It was right after draft. Uh, r- rookies and veterans would get together. The rookies would have like an orientation day and then get together with the, uh, with the veterans for a mini camp. And really, I mean, my entire career – I had an off-season job, you know. It was, uh, you know, my first three three-year salary: twenty-six thousand, twenty-nine thousand, thirty-three thousand. It wasn't, you know, a gold mine, and but but and I wanted to do something. And you know, I was married, and I uh, already had kids, so you know, I wanted to do something for, to prepare myself for life after football, not knowing when that life was going to start, when it was going to end, and when it was going to start. So every off-season, I had a job to. At least eliminate vocations, or see if I was, you know, choosing the right path, maybe to make sure that when I was done playing football, that I'd be in the right arena. So uh, had off-season jobs, and then would, you know, make sure that at lunchtime I was doing my workouts. If I took a two-hour lunch, uh, or an hour and a half, or something, to make up uh, to uh, have a strong workout down at Spiny Field, I'd either come in early or stay late, you know, just on the off-season job. So or did, did a bunch of different things. Uh, worked in public relations at a savings and loan. I worked with Bob Johnson and Imperial Adhesives when, when he bought that, uh, selling that, uh, you know, substitute taught one year. Did a whole bunch of different things and eliminated some vocations pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> what was the worst off-season gig in your playing days? I'd have to say substitute teaching oh. because, you know, it's like when, when, the, when the teacher's out, Let's take advantage of the situation, you know. Even with you. It's like you're a babysitter, you know. Yeah, but I, and, and I would try to lay the law down a little bit. And I mean, the other teachers are like, oh, no, yeah, it's great. You're doing a great job. But I always felt like, you know, I, I'd try to follow along with the teacher's lesson plan. You know, I didn't want the kids to fall behind. Sure. If I had the same class for three days, and, um, you know, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but my respect level for the teaching profession. Dramatically increased. I, I didn't really have behavioral problems or anything in the class. I think probably because they, you know, I don't want to mess around with this uh, with this guy potentially. But I, I did have one instance. Oh, excuse me, one instance of that though at a vocational school, um, and uh, this uh, the 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 principal. I go into the school and he goes, "You've got the pit." I said, "Oh, I know what the pit is. It's where when kids get kicked out of class, they had to go sign in at the pit and." Find something to do. And I'm like, that's what you want me to do all day. I can make a better contribution than that. No, no, you're perfect for the pit. And so two periods go by. I'm just sitting there reading books. You know, I'm stealing money. Third period, this kid shows up, big kid, and um, I slide a piece of paper over. There. I said, put your name. Class, you get kicked out of in reason and sit down and open a book and find something to do. F you. Drops it on me. Oh. So I'm like, oh, maybe you didn't hear me. So I get up from my seat and slide the thing over again. And I, I'm walking around the, uh, the table, and the last thing the principal said to me is, don't touch any of the kids. I'm not going to touch any of these kids. You know, there's no way. I wouldn't, why, do you think I'm stupid? The kid swings at me. And oh, I step wow. back, and I drill him, drop him. I hit him right in the chest. <laughs> My <laughs> fist goes up under his chest in his solar plexus. I hear all the air come out of him. He goes down to his knees. And he's like, get, gets up and sits down and signs in, reads, I didn't hear a thing, oh. not a peep out of him. So then, you know, I at the end of the day, there were two or three other kids signed. At the end of the day, the, the principal was like, "Any problems?" Yeah, that first name right there. He goes, "What happened?" I said, "Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to drop him." He goes, "Drop him? What do you mean, drop him?" So <laughs> he took a swing at me, and I responded, you know, self-defense. And he goes, "Really?" He goes, "That's your story." I said, "Yeah, that is my story. It's the truth." So, but I never, uh, the principal never heard anything from him. I never did. I went home, and of course, Lynn wasn't happy. <laughs> you did what? He's going to own us. <laughs> but I think, I think it was the first time he was ever really maybe disciplined in yeah, his life. I don't know. You did him a favor. Yeah, but he sat down, hushed up, and I never heard a peep out of him the rest of the time. But the whole time I'm thinking, oh, man, do I say something to this kid or just let it ride? I decided to just let it ride. Wise decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know about you, but I never had a substitute teacher that resembled Dave Lapham. We've learned quite a bit about Jonah Williams since the Bengals selected him with the 11th overall pick in this year's draft, but on this episode of The Pod, you're about to get a unique perspective on the 21-year-old offensive lineman. One of his teammates at Folsom High School in Northern California is now the starting tight end for the University of Cincinnati Bearcats, Josiah Deguara. I spoke to Josiah over the phone, and we started with his first memories of meeting Jonah after the Williams family moved to California from Georgia.
2: I mean, first thing you think when you see him is this is a freak of nature. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he doesn't look like he, he didn't look like he does now. Uh, I mean, he was still, he still had to be developed, but he was, you know, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, just a massive, massive dude for only being 16 years old at that time.
0: And I've read some stories in your hometown paper about him at practice, you know, just destroying guys. Stuff yeah. like that. Uh, what do you remember?
2: Whoever lined up against him, they weren't—they weren't very happy at that point. He was, I mean, you could tell by his senior high school tape that he just demolished anybody that was in his way, um, and that's obviously continued until now. So he's just—he's just a beast in every sense of the word.
0: Describe him as a person.
2: A super humble guy. I mean, you wouldn't even know who, like, who he is or what he does, besides the fact that he's just huge. You know, you would—you would never know that. Um, he's a three, you know, two-time All-American. You would never know any of that. I mean, from the time he stepped on into Folsom, I mean, he was just there to work. Um, he put his head down and grind. You know, he's quiet guy at first, but when you get to know him, um, super funny, awesome dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, first first one in, last one out kind of guy. Last one out of the building type of dude. Um, just put his head down and grinded and always stayed humble.
0: You guys were on one of the great high school teams in California history. How important was he to the success?
2: Oh, huge. I mean, we had a pretty dominant team um, before before he got there, and then when he got there, he just took our, our whole offense and defense, for that matter, to the next level. Whenever he got in, he just dominated the game.
0: What's your best Jonah Williams story that you can share?
2: Man, so my senior year... He, me and him TA'd for our, uh, for our football coach together. Um, so like an hour of the day, we'd always be together. And this is when he was trying to like put on muscle and, um, gain a lot of weight. Cause he was still, um, you know, a little bit smaller than he wanted. And every day I just remember he had this huge bag of food. Um, it was like a freezer bag, you know, it was a huge freezer bag of food, just full with sandwiches, protein bars, um, pretty much anything you can imagine, um, and out of every story of Jonah, I think that's one that I distinctively remember just him bringing that bag of food to school every day and just eating it like it was nothing. <laughs> um, he could, yeah, he could shout
0: down. My thanks to UC tight end Josiah Deguara, who had 38 catches last year, including five for touchdowns and should be one of the top tight ends in the American Athletic Conference this season. Now time for this week's Fun Facts interview, as we get to know one of the newcomers on the Bengals coaching staff. Time for some fun facts with the Bengals defensive coordinator, Lou Rumo from Staten Island, New York, one of the five boroughs of New York City. Tell us a little bit about growing up on Staten Island, just a short ferry ride from the Big Apple.
3: It was great. I wouldn't uh, want to grow up in any other place in the country. Uh, obviously, I'm biased, but um, I have... Uh, Perfected the art of uh, eating pizza. I, I can eat pizza every day. I mean, it's kind of like when I went to a coach at Harvard up in Massachusetts. There's a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner, every 200 yards, it feels yes. like. Well, in Staten Island, there's a pizzeria every every block or so, and you get to try it every day. So uh, it was a great place, great people. Uh, I love going back to visit it's uh it's a tr- terrific place
0: and as a true New Yorker I'm guessing you must fold your pizza
3: well 100 percent. yeah there's no other way to eat it <laughs>
0: what would your folks do for a living
3: so my mom was a secretary at Wagner College for forever uh 30 plus years uh my dad was a um a, a elementary school principal hmm. uh, in New York City public school system for for a long long time so he coached um uh, JV basketball when I was young. So I got kind of the coaching, uh, I guess, uh, bug back then. But, uh, but yeah, so high school coach and, and administrator.
0: He was a college athlete, correct?
3: Yeah, my dad was a good basketball player. Played at Wagner College, uh, Division One back then. Played uh, really, really good competition back then with NYU and those mm-hmm. teams being great. And uh, he was a point guard. And, um, you know, he could shoot it. He still... He still beats me and my sons every time we play 21 or something. He can still shoot the rock. So
0: That could mean you're not very good.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can shoot it a little bit, but he shoots it better.
0: We're doing fun facts with Lou Anarumo. So you mentioned that your mom worked at Wagner, your dad played sports at Wagner, and you went to Wagner. Describe mm-hmm. your college football experience. Mine was short and uh, brief for me as a as a
3: player. Um, you know, once I got there, played just that first semester or half of the semester, whatever it was, I don't even remember, um, but then got quickly into coaching. And, um, you know, I found out that uh, uh, the playing part uh, stopped for me basically in high school and then just moved on to coaching right away. And I jumped right in and, at uh, my old high school, and I was able to go to school during the day and go help those guys out in the afternoon.
0: You were the JV head coach as a college student, correct? I
3: was. So I think there was about six months difference between them. <laughs> There wasn't a whole lot of difference between me and the, and the guys, but we had fun and won some games. And uh, I really, really figured out what I wanted to do um, kind of early in my life that I, this was something that, uh, you know, I, I really got the bug for then.
0: So I was, I was all in. Do you know why, what it is about the profession that captivated you from such an early age?
3: I don't know. It's just, you know, you're, it's, I think it's like the players now, when you talk to them about potentially retiring or getting away from the game, you just meet, you miss being around the guys. So I wasn't playing anymore. I still love the game. Um, it, it was just the, uh, the detail of trying to figure out an opponent and, and then, you know, implement it with the players. And um, I, I don't know. I just liked it right away and kind of haven't stopped since. We're doing
0: Fun Facts with Lou Anarumo. Like all coaches, you've made several stops on your journey to the NFL, and you mentioned you spent time at Harvard, five years at Harvard, in fact. Is coaching at Harvard different from anywhere else you've ever coached just because of the caliber of students? Well, some of those guys, if you'd ask them, and I'm, I'm friends with most of
3: them today, but um, sometimes the book smart doesn't apply to the football field. And I would, I would make – Numerous references to that in a very colorful way back when I was a youngster, and uh, uh, but no, they're great guys, you know, and and some of them are doing, uh, you know, as you can imagine, uh, doing so well these days. But uh, you know, I would say all the time in the meeting room, I say, hey, this isn't rocket science, and like one of the. One of the guys raised his hand and said, yeah, coach, I am in rocket science, and it's not. I was like, okay, well, then do it right. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's funny. But, no, it was great, great experience.
0: Would we recognize the name of anybody you coached who's become a CEO or a politician uh, or anything like that?
3: I, I There's probably not that in that realm, but there's, there's been a handful of pro football players. Matt Burke, the center for the Ravens all those years, and uh, – you know, Isaiah Kazavinsky played tight end. Uh, obviously, uh, Fitz, uh, I just missed him. Um, but there's been a few players. And then the, the guys that are CEOs and that, n- nobody off the top of my head. That, uh, But they're out there. I just don't know which ones they're running right now.
0: Eventually, I'm sure we'll recognize yeah. some of the guys you coached. Your longest college stop was eight years at Purdue. So you got an extended taste of life in the Midwest. What did you think?
3: Oh, I loved it. You know, it was funny. We, uh, You know, my first... Time away from the East Coast, and um, you know my family sees that as home today. You talk to my kids, you know, we want to go back to Indiana. You know, we want to go see our friends, and and uh, so it's great. I mean, the people are terrific, and um, it's just a, it's just different, totally different from the from the from the Northeast. And I realized I was back when I made my journey from here in Cincinnati to Columbus on a pro day a couple months ago, whenever the heck it was. And I saw cornfields on my left and cornfields on my right. I knew exactly where I was.
0: (laughs) Your first NFL job was with the Miami Dolphins. Can you describe what it was like to get that offer after you've been a JV high school head coach? Now you've got the opportunity to coach at the highest level.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd spent my time. I I feel like I, I say this all the time. I came up the right way because I coached at every level. I coached in high school. I coached at Division three. I coached 1AA, and I coached uh, major college football, and then to the NFL. So you kind of learn – you learn more what not to do than than what to do. And through your experiences of, uh, hey, I've already seen this work or that not work, and, and um, uh, to me I would take no other path than the one I did because – Um, At the end of the day, this is about teaching and coaching the guys. And you learn, you got to implement. I was at Marshall, I was at Harvard, and and two different type kids, you know. Uh, I was at, uh, like I said, as you mentioned, Purdue. Um, And you just learn how to uh, teach. Everybody's different, and you you find what what reaches each individual player.
0: We're visiting with Lou Anarumo. On the Dolphins staff, you got to know Zach Taylor. What were your initial impressions of him?
3: Great. You know, Zach and I would get together all the time, you know, just about, hey, what's this offense trying to run here? And I would go down to his office and uh, ask him about particular routes. He would do the same with me on defense. And, hey, hey, what uh, what's the defense trying to accomplish here? And so we kind of hit it off right away and, and have uh, been kind of friends ever since.
0: You were with the Dolphins when the team was featured on Hard Knocks. Did you have a Hard Knocks moment?
3: I think I did. Um, it wasn't too bad. Those guys are great. The NFL film guys are tremendous. You don't even know they're there half the time, but there are – cameras and microphones everywhere so you got to be conscious um, but you know I didn't have anything too bad no let me, let me rephrase that I really didn't I really didn't have to rethink it no
0: you spent last year coaching with the New York Giants was it surreal to go to work every day so close to where you grew up and I was a giant fan
3: growing up so it was uh, the first time I got there and you know uh, went to visit and, and walk by the trophies and and LT's jersey and Phil said, all those guys when I was a kid that was you know that was my team and uh, so yeah it was great and then on Saturdays a lot of the alumni would come by and I'd be I know him I know him I know him and um, it, it's just such a great great organization and great place um,
0: you know and um, it was it was unbelievable to be there. Right, a few random things to wrap this up your happiest moment as a sports fan was anytime the Yankees beat the Red Sox
3: um, Jeff Hobson will love that <laughs> um, I would have to say I don't remember the ending wasn't great but this this time of the year was a spring of like uh, I don't remember late 80s or early 90s when the Rangers were in the Stanley Cup and the Knicks were in the NBA finals, um, and it was when the OJ thing happened. So whatever spring that was, whatever year that was, I don't remember off the top of my head, there was like three or four game sevens uh, throughout that run. So every night we would go home or after, whenever the heck it was, we would get together with the guys, and we were watching like the most meaningful games that you've, you know, when is that ever going to happen again? Two of your favorite teams are are going to game sevens and you're battling. it. It was unbelievable. Uh, I still remember vividly I was leaving Kings Point where I was working I was driving home on the Bell Parkway in traffic of course and Mike and the Mad Dog were on the radio and the Knicks were down um four to two uh, excuse me uh they couldn't have been four to two I think they were down three to two to the Pacers and they were playing in Indy and all of them said this is it you know th- th- there's no way the Knicks are going to pull it off and uh they came back, and won both games, and went on to the final. So it, it was just uh, it was unbelievable. I loved it.
0: Your all-time favorite athlete in any sport is? I would probably say Derek Jeter
3: just because of who he is and what he's done in his career and, and um, unscathed through the media for 20 years. And I, it's, it's almost impossible what he accomplished in all of his achievements and
0: both on and off the field. He also dated nothing but tens, <laughs> which is I consider his greatest achievement. Yeah. La, la, last fun fact. <laughs> last fun fact for Lou Anna Rumo. Of all the tourist attractions in New York City, which one is your favorite?
3: I think, unfortunately, I think the one that everybody needs to go see is the uh, 9-11 Memorial. I lost uh, a few friends and buddies that were firefighters mm-hmm. that day. And... Um, not that it's my favorite. It's just, uh, it's uh, I would say the pizza place is my favorite. But that's something that everybody, if they ever go to New York, they need to take the time and go do it because it really gives you an understanding of what happened. And those poor people that died that day, uh, it kind of shakes you up. And, and you can, you know, you actually go through the museum. You can hear the terrorist voice on the, they have it uh, on the voice recorder saying, you know, blah, blah, whatever they said, but uh, it, it gets you.
0: So, yeah, I would advise
3: everybody to do that.
0: The Bengals went as a team a few years ago before they played the Jets, which was really cool.
3: It's very, to me, one of the most, like I said, it, it, it'll bring you,
0: you know, to realize how lucky we are. You've got a meeting. I appreciate your time. Look forward to uh, watching your defense play this year.
3: Same here. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
0: And that's going to do it for this week's podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. And if you have a minute, Give it a rating or leave a comment. Your feedback's been very helpful, and five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.